BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. On the line with us is Lala Wu, the co-founder and executive director of the Sister District Project. That website, sisterdistrict.com, bringing women into politics. Sister underscore district is the Twitter handle, as well as underscore Lala, L-A-L-A underscore Wu, W-U underscore. Lala, welcome to the program. So glad to have you with us. Can you give us the details of the proposed Texas legislation and why it's consequential? Thanks, Tom. So glad to be here. Texas already has some of the toughest voting laws in the country, and Republicans are trying to make them even tougher. And I think it's important to put this in a national context that there have already been 17 states that have passed 28 laws restricting voting. And all of these are pushed by Republicans that are premised on the big lie that, of course, somehow Biden didn't win the election. And with the Texas law in particular, it truly is, I mean, a real parade of horribles. And I think what's important to note here is that it's not random. It's not just Republicans throwing spaghetti at the wall of what do they think might restrict voters and in particular voters of color. The background here is that in 2020, Harris County, which is where Houston is, they rolled out a bunch of new measures during the pandemic to help people vote. Um, this includes drive-through voting, which one in 10 early voters took advantage of, expanded voting hours. They automatically sent ballots to eligible voters. They had 24-hour voting in the form of drop boxes. And what happened was that even though Republicans brought some litigation to challenge it, voter of colors prevailed and they really benefited from these expanded measures and there was the highest turnout in 30 years. And now fast forward to where we are now and of course the Texas law wants to restrict all of these things. They want to ban drive-through voting, they want to get rid of those expanded voting hours, they want to eliminate 24-hour drop boxes, and they want to ban, you know, mailing ballots to eligible voters, even criminalizing certain aspects of that process. And on top of that, they also want to add more protections for partisan poll workers, which really allow them to roam free and intimidate folks. 
We know that groups like the Proud Boys and other Trump-aligned Trump supporters have been recruited in the past to come to Harris County and to basically stand and you know act as so-called poll watchers and create havoc in that way. They also want to criminalize things like small clerical errors, and that's not the direction that we need to go in this country when it comes to how to vote. So the list goes on and on. There's new ID requirements for voting by mail, new requirements for people who are trying to help other people to vote. Um, And the list, like I said, goes on and on and on. But this is really a very, very targeted attempt by the Texas Republicans to restrict all of the ways that Harris County in particular, um, which has a large urban black and brown population, were able to successfully expand the electorate. Yeah, and the Supreme Court has essentially said, if the law doesn't say you can't vote if you're a person of color, if it doesn't say those words, basically it doesn't matter. That partisan gerrymandering, partisan restrictions on voting are just fine. And yet the partisan lines, you know, since 1968, when the Republican Party embraced white supremacy with Nixon's Southern strategy, partisan divide has become also a racial divide in the United States. Exactly. It just blows my mind that it doesn't actually, given who John Roberts is and the the work that he did. I mean, you know, one of his major projects when he worked in the Reagan White House in Reagan's Department of Justice, trying to find ways around the Brown versus Board of Education law. He wrote a whole long paper on it. That's right. You know, suggesting ways to get around Brown v. Board, as well as Roe v. Wade, which I lay out in my book on the Supreme Court. Just look at the history of these people. It's just amazing. We're talking with Lala Wu, the co-founder and executive director of the Sister District Project. SisterDistrict.com is the website. What are you hearing from you know your collaborators and colleagues in Texas about how people are pushing back on this? And if the Republicans succeed in getting this law passed, which actually looks like it's probable, I mean, there's there, at a certain mm-hmm. point, these Democrats are going to have to go home. What will the fallout be? I mean, I, I've seen some optimists, for example, saying, you know, uh, the, uh, these laws against voting in, in Georgia, well, we, as you said, 17 states now, they're going to cause more Democrats to show up and people are going to be super energized, you know, sort of like the way Donald Trump, a lot of people showed up in the 2020 election, not so much to vote for Joe Biden, but to vote against Donald Trump. Is that optimism justified or, or will this, this, these voter suppression efforts be sufficiently successful to crush voter turnout in the next election in 2022? I think that if this law passes, it is going to be a huge uh, blow to uh, Democrats in Texas, but that doesn't mean that all hope is lost. There are really strong community-based organizations in Texas, uh, Texas Organizing Project as an example of one of them, that really focus on building uh, a strong electorate, a strong voter base, and turning people out despite all odds. Like I mentioned, Texas already has some of the strictest voting laws um, in the country. And, uh, you know, no matter what happens, folks on the ground will be fighting tooth and nail, doing everything they can within the new laws to turn people out. So, you know, I would say nothing is for certain. We can't, um, you know, take our eye off the ball. We have to continue to stay focused, continue to support the organizers and the Democrats in the state who are doing this hard work of fighting back. And, 
you know, what we are hearing on the ground, for example, sister district, we build progressive power in state legislators and support state legislative swing district races. And last year, our alumni um, representative Ann Johnson uh, was the only red to blue flip in Texas, and she represents parts of Harris County, which is, as I mentioned, where Houston is located. Um, she has become one of the leading voices in the walkout, and you know, along with over 50 Democrats, as you mentioned, who left the state to break quorum and stop this bill from being rammed through. They're risking arrest and electoral challenges, uh, even stronger electoral challenges when they get back to the state when they're up for re-election. I mean, one of them even missed her wedding. And so people are really putting themselves out on the line. And, you know, I appreciate this opportunity to have this conversation to continue to shine light on this very, very, uh, you know, serious, serious issue that we need to continue to, uh, to support the yeah. folks. I saw, I saw a report on TV last night, and I'm assuming that it's credible. It was, yeah, it was on either CNN or MSNBC um, that said that, uh, you know, for example, in, in Georgia, when they declared that there was going to be a special election, you know, that, that Reverend Warnock ran in, uh, as I recall, uh, or in Arizona, you had this special election with Mark Kelly. That in Texas, when you declare a special election, you have either four or six months from the time that it's declared and people throw their hat into the ring until the time that the election happens. And so there's plenty of time there for people who might be excited by that special election or particularly invigorated by the possibility of a candidate they like to register to vote. So under this new law in Texas, what they're saying is that special elections have to happen within 28 days. And once you register to vote, you may not vote for the first time until the 29th day, which prevents people from, you know, from special from voting in special elections if that's the thing that they're trying to address. I mean, it's just it's just crazy, the granularity of this. And here's the thing, Tom. I mean, Republicans are just merciless, right? They just uh, are highly targeted and strategic, and they take no prisoners when it comes to passing legislation that, uh, you know, benefits themselves. Just like the old South. (laughs) It's amazing. Lala Wu, (laughs) the co-founder and executive director of SisterDistrict.com is the website, SisterDistrict.com. Uh, sister underscore district also over on Twitter. Lala, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Great talking with you. For our book club today, we're reading from Thomas Frank's book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. This is chapter one, titled Servile Disobedience. Social scientists have tried for more than a century to understand how class works. Psychological experiments on the subject, however, are a relatively novel thing, so I was surprised to discover a few years ago that psychologists had published a series of papers on the behavioral aspects of social status, and that their findings were almost uniformly unflattering towards society's winners. In one 2009 study in psychological science found that in conversations with strangers, high-status people tend to do more doodling and fidgeting and also to use fewer engagement cues, looking at the other person, laughing, nodding their heads. A 2010 paper published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that lower-class individuals, in quote, turned out to be better performers on measures of such pro-social virtues as generosity, charity, and helpfulness. A third study found that those of higher status were noticeably worse at assessing the emotions of others or figuring out what facial expressions mean. All of which is to say the rich are different from you and me. They are more rude and less generous. 
They don't understand. They don't get what others are thinking. And apparently they don't really care. Perhaps this is obvious to you. After all, people don't design toxic debt obligations by calling on what they learned in Sunday school. Still, the research aroused in media interest. The Christian Science Monitor's 2010 account of one study ended with this question, quotation from Michael Krauss, then the University of California, San Francisco, who is one of the researchers, quote, being empathic is one of the first steps to helping other people. One of the first things we're really interested in is what can make wealthy people, affluent people, the people with the capacity to give, what can make them empathic? I think I see the urgency of Dr. Krauss's question. After all, we have spent the past several decades doing everything we could to transfer the wealth of the nation into the bank accounts of the affluent to send them victorious, happy, and glorious long to reign over us. Oh, we've cut their taxes, gladly transferring much of the cost of keeping their property safe onto our own shoulders. We've furnished them with special megaphones so that their voices can be heard over the hubbub of the crowd. We've conferred upon them separate and better schools, their very own transportation system, and a full complement of private security guards. We've built an entire culture of courtiers and syncopants to make their every working hour an otherworldly delight. We let them construct a system of bonuses and executive compensation on the theory that it would be good for everyone if the people at the top got to take home much, much more than the rest of us. And when it turned out that the theory was wrong, that in the most famous cases, executives chased bonuses not to the shareholders' benefit, but at their expense, why, we promptly bailed them out. We allowed them to step into the Fed's discount window and fill their pockets. We generously transferred their reckless investments to our balance sheet, and we chastised them a little more than a polite, with little more than a polite request that they please not do it again. We've done everything we can to lift them up and exalt them as the new Leviathan. The least they can do in return, one feels, is to show a little empathy. Besides, look what we've done with the old Leviathan, the government. For decades, we've attacked it, redirected it, outsourced it, and filled it with incompetence and cronies. Yes, it still works well enough when we need to blow up some small country. But those branches of it designed to help our Americans of lower socioeconomic status, in quotes, as the scientists would put it, are now bare. We need the rich to be nice, stop doodling, and, and to pay attention and get generous. Now that the government has divested from the empathy business, we need the rich to discover brotherly love and fast. Come to think of it, wasn't that supposed to be the deal in the first place? The arrangement Andrew Carnegie brokered over a century ago when he made his big career move from Steel King to public library baron? The laissez-faire social contract would grant private business a free hand, but in exchange, those who piled up massive wealth were supposed to extend a magnanimous hand to the rest of us. As Carnegie wrote in his famous 1889 essay, The Gospel of Wealth, but the billionaires with the strongest sense of class solidarity have a very different plan for their disposable income. Activating their lobbyists in Washington, building grassroots movements to march on their behalf, and using their media properties to run experiments on human credulity. Rendezvous with Oblivion reports from a sinking society. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. 
See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. We're kind of uh, crowdsourcing, brainstorming uh, solutions to the problem of inequality in the United States, crime that comes as a result of that, the social breakdown that comes, the, the crime is a symptom of. People think of crime as a, as a core thing in and of itself, like it just magically appears out of nothing, you know, like a weed in your lawn. Well, the weed appears in your lawn because a seed got there and because the soil can nurture it. Crime doesn't come out of nothing either. Crime comes out of inequality. Crime comes out of despair. Crime comes out of opportunity in some cases. But, but at the bottom line, crime comes out of a lack of social fabric. It, it comes out of the breakdown of society. And we are seeing that hugely in the United States right now. And other developed countries, not so much. Why? Well, it's because we're the most unequal society in the developed world. Period. Way beyond anybody else. So, what do we do about that? Um, picking up your thoughts, Rhonda in Charleston, West Virginia. Hey, Rhonda, what's on your mind today? Hi. Yes, um, I think I got a, a kind of a unique perspective on this. I taught high school for 34 years. I'm, I've come from the state that has the highest poverty, most least educated state in the nation. Mm -hmm. And after seeing more and more children graduate from high school, they, they we're get, less of our children are having to find a way to go to college. Even our trade schools have become competitive. When when I grew up in the 70s, about anybody could go to a trade school. Now it's gotten to the point, at least here, where it's become competitive even to go to uh, a trade school. These these children are graduating, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, without a clear path as to how to start their life, and 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 they they're they're hopeless. They're full of despair because it's a time when they're going to start their life. And you come here to southern West Virginia, and you're really going to see a lot of poverty and, and, and no way to get out. These people can't just move out. Our biggest employer is Walmart. I mean, so mm -hmm. uh, we're not giving people the – I don't think criminals want to be criminal. I don't think they start out that way. But there is a, a point where, you know, these kids or these young people are saying, I, I have to live. And so I think that we need to start looking at how are we giving our people a path in order to make a living and, and to make a, their way in life. So I don't know what your idea is on that, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's a really important point, Rhonda. And, and that is, you know, this goes back to my original, in, in my original rant in the first hour where I said, I, th I really think that there are four things that we need to say are just core structural pillars to a functioning developed society. 
and that is that everybody has access to health care that isn't going to bankrupt them, that everybody has access to education that isn't going to bankrupt them, everyone has access to housing that isn't going to bankrupt them, and everyone has access to enough food. And, and not just, you know, food desert food, not just Cheetos, but, you know, the stuff that you can buy in a 7-Eleven. I mean, there are literally parts of America where for a 10-mile radius or a 20-mile radius, all you, the only food available is at dollar stores or 7-Elevens. I'm talking about real food. We have food. whole counties. We have whole counties with no grocery stores at all. Exactly. I mean, whole counties. And what does that lead to? <laughs> Obesity and, and uh, type 2 diabetes and heart disease and, I mean, you know, process and cancer. Processed food jacks up your risk of cancer. It leads to all these uh, terrible outcomes. So if we could just establish the floor, those four items as a basic floor, those, by the way, were the key components of uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program that has been just whittled away at ever since, uh, you know, the, the Reagan presidency. But if we just could do those four things and lift people up a little bit to create to reestablish a middle class in America and reestablish social trust among people and and then diminish this massive wealth at the top where we're not seeing you know I mean what was it a couple of years ago is Larry Ellison and some other billionaire were competing to, to see who could have the biggest yacht you know is it 435 feet or 485 feet and now it's you know who can have the the biggest rocket ship to blast themselves into outer <laughs> space people are watching this and going what the hell i can't feed my family and i'm supposed to be cheering this guy you know it's uh, who, who paid one percent in income taxes last year blasting off into outer space thank you very much for that i, I thank I, you yeah you're welcome randy in atlanta randy your thoughts it's like any other problem we have to admit it that we have a serious issue and racism is at the top of the heat when racism is sold as a product in which that's what it's been, it's been sold in this country, and you have too many people has bought into it, meaning you have a lot of white people that still believe that if I buy into this theory that I'm better than anyone else and that I'm supposed to have, then people are not going to do what they are uh, uh, back to that uh, saying as kids. They're not going to do what they're supposed to do. Right. So... When I look at people like Trump and the people of his ilk, I mean, it's disturbing, Tom. People like Trump have to be just taken out of the mix because they're selling lies and they're, they're destroying everything good about human race. When yeah, you really and, and, and I'm assuming, Rudy, you do not mean that in any, in any way that implies violence. Um, no, 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 yeah. but no, no. It's not about violence, Tom. It's about doing what's socially. Yeah. It's about doing what is right socially. And this tears down everyone, especially the ones that believe in it. Because if, 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 if these people keep believing that, oh, I got all the marbles and no one's going to eat, you keep on eating a steak out in the middle of nowhere and watch what happens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well said, Rudy. Thank you very much. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's up? Oh, Professor, I'm getting an A in this class. You, uh, the question on the floor is, what do we do? Mm -hmm. No problem. We start with services. What's another way of saying homelessness? No services. Look here. My mother has some problems. We call her mommy has some problems, but they had services back then. Uh, the patriarch in my family was an alcoholic, a veteran, but we had a place to take, uh, you know, Papa Bear, you know? Mm -hmm. so, but we ain't got them services today. Now, I think what we need to do, we need to make America great again. That's right. I said it. Go back to 1958, 1958. 
1959, the corporate tax rate was 92%. Now, what did that do? That kept money in circulation. They couldn't hoard money. Now, what's your best investment? You got to go to education. I remember when the United States was one, led the world in, in education. Yep. Now, uh, now our uh, students are in loan debt. I remember when California was number 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 second in the uh, United States. Now we 48. That the, the teacher I heard to say 40. She's number uh, 48. Number 49. The worst. Gee whiz, my lord. We all down there. Now what's going on here? We got to think of opposition politics. We didn't have that when you was a young man. We get it big time now. And they're surrogates of the devil. Why? Because they're authors of confusion. All right. And they operate on a double standard and their food of choice. That's their food of choice. Confusion. Double standards. They got mouthpieces. They got lobbyists. They got judges. They got public officials. Let me tell you what else they. They got organizations. They got your Koch brothers, your Federalist Foundation, your Heritage uh, Society. These people are not for, for democracy. Now, I'm going to tell you how we can beat them. I'm going to tell you how we can beat them. Ain't but one way out. More people got to vote. The big blue wave of defeat anything, and that includes gerrymandering. Call me crazy. Talk to you later. No, Morris, you need your own YouTube channel <laughs> or TikTok or whatever it may be, because Morris, you got the greatest rants. And Morris, Morris just hung up. He, he just you know delivers his rants and... and and uh, amazing. I, I, I love Morris's rants. Joan in San Francisco. Hey, Joan, you're on the air. What's on your mind? In San Francisco, there's a plan to reduce the number of toilets for the homeless. Um, why? I just found out about it yesterday. It doesn't say why. It says that uh, this month, the city's plan to substantially reduce access to public toilets across San Francisco, targeting locations with high concentrations of unhoused San Franciscans, was unveiled. Is this to discourage I, people from from uh, you know pitching their tents near the near the public toilets? Absolutely, and yeah. it's not just that. Uh, they they have a no sit and lie law in San Francisco that was put in by uh, something like a business improvement district, not mm -hmm. necessarily the local people, and uh, they have removed any place that people can sit down. The benches. They actually hacked off a concrete bench off a wall at the Buena Vista Park because young people sat there, and they removed yeah. all the logs. See, this is dealing with the symptoms of a problem rather than the causes. Well, it's worse than that. It's, it's hostile architecture. There's a hatefulness about it. You know, you can't sit down. You can't get water to give your dog. You know, there's no place to go to the bathroom. I mean... I went to the public restroom uh, last week and at uh, 7.30, that's supposed to close at 8, and it was already closed. Hmm. And, uh, you know, what? it's, it's very awful. And, and they, put, they put rocks under the trees so people can't sit there in this new section that they just opened up uh, on near Stanion Street. Stanion and Haight. And uh, they, they've got these big carpets of rocks. Wow. Yeah, I know, I know the area. I used to, I, you know, in, in the summer of 68, I lived on Fell Street right off Haight. Uh, oh. Yeah, just a, a couple blocks in the corner of Haight and Ashbury. Thank you. Thanks for the report and the information. It's just, oh, this, is, this is terrible. Thank you, Joan. We need to do something. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We need to do something deep and systemic. We need to look at the causes of this problem, not just the symptoms. For our book club today, we're reading from Thomas Frank's book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. This is chapter one, titled Servile Disobedience. Social scientists have tried for more than a century to understand how class works 
Psychological experiments on the subject, however, are a relatively novel thing. So I was surprised to discover a few years ago the psychologists had published a series of papers on the behavioral aspects of social status and that their findings were almost uniformly unflattering towards society's winners. In one 2009 study in psychological science found that in conversations with strangers, high-status people tend to do more doodling and fidgeting and also to use fewer engagement cues, looking at the other person, laughing, nodding their heads. A 2010 paper published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that lower-class individuals, in quote, turned out to be better performers on measures of such pro-social virtues as generosity, charity, and helpfulness. A third study found that those of higher status were noticeably worse at assessing the emotions of others or figuring out what facial expressions mean. All of which is to say the rich are different from you and me. They are more rude and less generous. They don't understand, they don't get what others are thinking, and apparently they don't really care. Perhaps this is obvious to you. After all, people don't design toxic debt obligations by calling on what they learned in Sunday school. Still, the research aroused media interest. The Christian Science Monitor's 2010 account of one study ended with this question, quotation from Michael Krauss, then the University of California, San Francisco, who was one of the researchers, quote, being empathic is one of the first steps to helping other people. One of the first things we're really interested in is what can make wealthy people, affluent people, the people with the capacity to give, what can make them empathic? I think I see the urgency of Dr. Krauss's question. After all, we have spent the past several decades doing everything we could to transfer the wealth of the nation into the bank accounts of the affluent to send them victorious, happy, and glorious long to reign over us. Oh, we've cut their taxes, gladly transferring much of the cost of keeping their property safe onto our own shoulders. We've furnished them with special megaphones so that their voices can be heard over the hubbub of the crowd. We've conferred upon them separate and better schools, their very own transportation system, and a full complement of private security guards. We've built an entire culture of courtiers and syncopants to make their every working hour an otherworldly delight. We let them construct a system of bonuses and executive compensation on the theory that it would be good for everyone if the people at the top got to take home much, much more than the rest of us. And when it turned out that the theory was wrong, that in the most famous cases, executives chased bonuses not to the shareholders' benefit, but at their expense, why, we promptly bailed them out. We allowed them to step into the Fed's discount window and fill their pockets. We generously transferred their reckless investments to our balance sheet, and we chastised them a little more than a polite, with little more than a polite request that they please not do it again. We've done everything we can to lift them up and exalt them as the new Leviathan. The least they can do in return, one feels, is to show a little empathy. Besides, look what we've done with the old Leviathan, the government. For decades, we've attacked it, redirected it, outsourced it, and filled it with incompetence and cronies. Yes, it still works well enough when we need to blow up some small country. But those branches of it designed to help our Americans of lower socioeconomic status, in quotes, as the scientists would put it, are now bare. We need the rich to be nice, stop doodling and, and to pay attention and get generous. Now that the government has divested from the empathy business, we need the rich to discover brotherly love and fast. Come to think of it, wasn't that supposed to be the deal in the first place? The arrangement Andrew Carnegie brokered over a century ago when he made his big career move from Steel King to public library baron? The laissez-faire social contract would grant private business a free hand, but in exchange, those who piled up massive wealth were supposed to extend a magnanimous hand to the rest of us. As Carnegie wrote in his famous 1899, uh, 1889 essay, The Gospel of Wealth, 
We don't need socialism to solve our problems. Philanthropy is the true antidote for the temporary inequality distribution of wealth and reconciliation of the rich and poor, quoting Carnegie. Going further, Carnegie argued that the duty of the man of wealth was, quote, to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, which he's called upon to administer in the manner which, in his judgment, is best calculated to produce the most beneficial results for the community, the man of wealth thus becoming the mere trustee and agent for his poorer brethren, end quote. That same way of thinking led Carnegie to support the estate tax of all forms of taxation. This says the why, this seems the wisest, he wrote. It, is, it was wise because it would, quote, induce the rich man to attend to the administration of wealth during his life. And if he didn't, then the tax would, re, would return most of his hoardings to the community from which it came, using Carnegie's words. Vestiges of the Carnegie attitude survived to this day. 2009 study of high net worth individuals by Barclays Wealth confirmed that American philanthropists tend to understand their giving in a context in which the state is either absent or irrelevant. And, of course, there are plenty of nice plutocrats who don't fidget or doodle when talking to strangers and who have no problem endowing a ward or a wing in return for a commemorative plaque. The business headlines even occasionally tell of billionaires coming together under the leadership of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates to donate their fortunes to worthy causes. But the billionaires with the strongest sense of class solidarity have a very different plan for their disposable income. Activating their lobbyists in Washington, building grassroots movements to march on their behalf, and using their media properties to run experiments on human credulity. Rendezvous with Oblivion reports from a sinking society. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind? A lot of real kind of pinpoint ideas mm-hmm. yeah. to deal with all of it. I mean, you, you really put it out there. I mean, you know, crime and homelessness and uh, uh, inequality and racism and yada yada. But if there is one single policy change that we could make in America, it would be to look to the nation that uh, trained Christopher Columbus on how to find America, and that was Portugal. And we need to end our war on drugs. Its tentacles reach out and touch everything. Yeah, we've done that here in Oregon. You know, we we decriminalized all uh, possession of small amounts of all drugs. And we'll get a decade of that, and we'll see how crime rates have plummeted there, because they're sure to, just as they have in Portugal. And if you um, you think about the way whole families are affected uh, generationally, and it's not, you know, if you take drug war as a a term of a policy, um, you have problems that come from the drugs, for sure. Um, largely manageable and largely individualized if you look at drug problems. But if you look at the war problems, those are systemic and societal. And you hit on something earlier when, uh, you know, you're trying to find a term for it. Kenyatta had said something about, um, well, what do we want equality to look like? Do we want these people to to achieve the sameness of wealthy white people? And uh, later on, you, you responded to somebody about having agency. And I think an extension of that is having dignity. Mm. And the individual identifies that for themselves. And there's a lot more people who are not really motivated by money than most people would think, but they find their dignity elsewhere. I mean, we revere people who, um, you know, take up uh, the cloth and, and vow poverty and things like that. We, we see that as so noble, and yet in our competitive 
uh, consumerist, capitalistic paradigm. And I think you would see business fertilizer in little micro mini businesses mm -hmm. all over the country. What you're talking about, Eric, is what is in Scandinavia and most of Europe. I mean, yeah, you know, no, it's just this I'm, is. I'm headed there. Yeah, this is I've not. Been tell, I've been telling you for years. I'm I'm waiting out this lawsuit, and I'm I'm moving to Europe uh, yeah. as soon as it's over. I, I get it. Yeah. And and you, and your thing on the war on drugs is so spot on. When I was when I was a little kid, I mean, you know, like eight, nine, ten, twelve, thirteen, um, uh, I had uh, three best friends. Three three. There was uh, four boys, four of us who used to hang out together. Mm -hmm. And one of us, when he turned seventeen, I think it was. Um, you're, you're the guy who went to prison, your buddy. Yeah, he, he got times. he got busted with some pot, and they sent him to prison for two years, and he came back shattered. I, I mean, shattered. I, I'm a felon. I'm a felon because I forged my own prescriptions twenty some years ago, before the whole opioid epidemic was a uh, a familiar term. Yeah. I was one of the first casualties. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, and I know what you're talking about. Eric, thank you. Thank you. Spot on and very well said. So we're talking about what do we do about crime in America and to what extent is crime actually a symptom of larger societal problems, the largest being massive inequality. But there's all kinds of other structural things we have since the Reagan revolution eroded public housing, housing, low-income housing. We have eroded the ability of people to get health care without going bankrupt. We have pretty much done away with the ability to go to college, any, any kind of meaningful college, without ending up in so, such debt that you can't start a family or buy a house. And increasingly across America, we're seeing food deserts where people actually don't even have access to nutritional food. It is nuts, and we need to do something about it. Bobby in La Puente, California. Hey, Bobby, what's on your mind? Yeah, I'm going to weigh in on this, on the poverty you know, despair, like the teacher from West Virginia, she was describing me, describing me back in the, we're the same age, Tom, and mm -hmm. I compare myself to you. At 17, you're a DJ, you know, doing good. On the other side of the coin, I was starting my addiction on alcohol. Mm. For what? Because inequality, right? The name calling, you know, there's a racist component to it. I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley. And there's a book I want to suggest to you, Tom, if you want to read it. It's called Always Running, Luis J. Rodriguez. He grew up in uh, hey, a couple miles down for why did, you know, the gang situation. But he got out of it, wrote a book, describes how I grew up. The law enforcement, they look at you, no respect, you're just a brown skin, you know, throwaway. Mm -hmm. And then when you have that mindset, you don't have no respect for society. Right. You know, I thought of, what do I do if my family was in need? A, a drug deal, and I don't like to think of that. And you know what? Jobs, union jobs, okay? Do the opposite of what Reagan did. Bring back health care for those that need it. I sure needed it, but you know what? Alcohol served a purpose. Alcohol and drugs are just a symptom of what's going on. Yep. It, doesn't, it, it affects the whites, every color, right? Right, but it, but it is, it affects historically discriminated against communities worse than it does white communities right across the board. Well, yes. Yeah. Well, and in our community, hey, if you went to corporate, wow, it, you know, honest, where you should have graduated, where did you do time? They asked me. Mm -hmm. I never did time. I was lucky. Yeah. You know, a little county, glass house, you know, but never, you know, that was the pride in yeah. that community. 
because that's all we were good for. We were hard workers. We had to break out of that. In the community, they need, say, counseling, right? Where I grew up, counseling, right? Therapy, mental health in schools. Yes. Because I, my daughter is, I got a daughter 38 with my granddaughter, will be eight years old in a couple of weeks, homeless, but they oh, live no. with us. Yeah. Well, it's okay. You know what? I can give back. Yeah. I'll help anybody. My yeah. neighbor, I'm growing, you know, garden. You yeah. need something? Here. Yeah. And that's all. Bring in compassion, empathy, and understanding. And how about using the golf courses for the homeless? I heard that from George Carlin years ago. Oh, yeah. A little white ball. Yeah. <laughs> right? They already got like facilities that. there. Yeah, like think that. about it. I like that. The greedy people. I used to hit a golf ball with a baseball bat how far I can get it. Yeah. You know, I was just surviving, Tom, and I'm lucky I'm here. I lost my, you had three brothers, mine are gone, yeah. and I'm the eldest. Oh, my. A lot of it, addiction. Well, I was raised by a World War II dad. Yeah. <laughs> that tells you something. Same here. Yeah. And I hope nobody goes through that, you know yeah. what I mean? So, but bless you, Tom, what you do, and the rest of the crew, your wife, I have to include them all. I get yeah. a little manic, your uh-huh. union. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. You always bring it back to compassion and, and caring for each other as, as fellow human beings, and it's so important. Thank you so much. Nancy in Chihuahua, Washington. Hey, Nancy. Hey, we have about a minute and a half hey, here Tom, before we have doing? to wrap up. Well, I'm fine. What's up? Um, clubhouse programs. They're huge. Fountain House is the biggest one in, in New York City. What is a clubhouse they program? housing. Huh? Uh, I'm sorry. You, I get, you were going to start telling me. I was saying, what, what is a clubhouse program? Clubhouse program is where they ease people with a history of mental illness back into uh, working. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they have a homeless uh, program where they sign the leases on apartments and then they put their, they guarantee the rent and then they put mentally ill people in the apartments and they all share the rent and pay it to Fountain House, you know, not for huh. profit or anything, just... And they've expanded so much. They own buildings, apartment buildings now, and co-ops and all kinds of things. Um, and that they've been doing great. But uh, in a lot of the red states, the uh, psychiatry industry tries to undermine them and shut them down. Because, uh, one, they could treat hundreds of or thousands of uh, clients with just one PhD psychiatrist uh, that heads the program, and they get the chronics off the street, and that a lot of these uh, outpatient clinics depend on the chronics. That's remarkable. Uh, But the thing is, Fountain House, they don't do counseling or meds, and they encourage their clients to do it, outpatient. Nancy, I've written it down. I've written it down. I will do a deep dive after we get off the air. Thank you so much. I'm learning so much from all of you. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Aaron in Tacoma. Hey, Aaron, what's on your mind today? I just wanted to talk about inequality and how that affects society. And I heard a caller talking about the corporate greed of healthcare. Mm-hmm. And the corporate greed of healthcare is ultimately affecting our society, as you see in Portland with the mental health crises, the tents, the homelessness, and the breakdown in that matter. Mm-hmm. That is America and society being greedy, not supplying healthcare at all. That only doesn't affect mental health, but that affects every aspect of the body especially considering the fact that we all pay out the wazoo for health insurance, and that does not cover dental, vision, hearing. Is that not part of our human body? Should we have to pay separately for another insurance on our body? You are that singing my greed. song, Aaron. I just, uh, yesterday, I just greed. I just got a copy of my next book. I've, I've I got to have a physical copy in my hand here, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You, and makes others insanely rich. It won't be available for sale for another month or so, um, but I just got a copy, and and uh, I, you know, I, everything you just said is in is is in that. I, uh, the the research that I did for that book just completely blew my mind about how bad things are in the United States, how they got this way, um, what a huge role race played in getting them this way, um, among other things. Go ahead. It's unbelievable, Tom, and it's the lobby. It's the lobbyists that control our government, that control the healthcare industry, and that includes the dental lobby, the vision lobby, etc. I've I've been a healthcare worker for 14 years, and I love working with patients. I love community, but the healthcare industry is broken. It is only there for the people at the top, and they all they're looking out for is their profits and not caring about patients. If People remember when a doctor becomes a physician, you have to take a Hippocratic oath, a Hippocratic oath, and that is to look out for the patients and not yourself. It's always to be the patients. We don't look at healthcare like that in today's age. All we look at is a patient is a number and a monetary figure, and that is wrong. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm completely with you. And, Absolutely wrong. And and the healthcare industry is only going to get worse because people aren't going to want to work in it because. Of that reason, of that greed is going to scare people away that actually have compassion and passion for humans. Well, this is the thing. Starting in the 1980s, prior to the 1980s, uh, to the best of my knowledge, every state in the union, there may be an outlier here that I didn't find, but as far as I could tell, every state in the union required health insurance companies to be nonprofits and hospitals to be nonprofits. And I was, you know, I grew up in Michigan, and in the early 70s, we had an herbal tea company, and we had a little factory. We had 18 people working for us, me and my partner, mm-hmm. Terry O'Connor. And we, we provided health care to everybody. It was Blue Cross Blue Shield. It cost 30 bucks per month per employee. I, I remember it quite well, you know. And, and, and they probably had no deductible at that time. No, there was nothing. Uh, you know, it's a, it was, and you could see any doctor anytime, and you could go anywhere, and the yep. hospitals were, yeah. And, and, and now the three hospitals in Lansing, St. Lawrence, Sparrow, and Ingham are now and Ingham Medical is no longer owned by Ingham County. It's it's now a private corporation. They changed the name. Sparrow and St. Lawrence have both become for for profit. The health insurance companies Absolutely. have all become for profit. The, the prices are through the roof. And I guarantee you, the thirty bucks per month per person 
that I use to pay for for health insurance doesn't even cover deductibles today. I mean, you know, no, when, that, that wouldn't even cover a doctor's visit, Tom. It is, it is a crying shame that we live in this kind of society. I am with you. Aaron, thank you for the call. Thank you. That was brilliant. What do we do about all of these problems? This is a multidimensional, multifactorial issue that, in my opinion, we find the roots of in the, the neoliberal turn that America took in 1980 when we, when we embraced Reaganism and Reaganomics. And we are still in the Reaganism-Reaganomics era. We have not yet repudiated it. We have not yet raised uh, the top tax rate on the, on the very, very richest above 50% like it was before Reagan came into office. We have not raised the corporate tax rate up into the 30s and 40% for the most, for those corporations that are essentially printing money like we did before Reagan came into office. We have not made it easier for people to form labor unions across the United States. In fact, if anything, we've made it much, much harder and we've destroyed unionization. We, uh, we have not strengthened the social safety net, which Lyndon Johnson did in, in the era from 1965 through 1968 with Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, well, Social Security he expanded, um, uh, children's health insurance programs, food stamps, uh, Section 8 housing, low-income housing, construction of new housing. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of programs that were part of what, what uh, was called the Great Society. Some people refer to it as the Second Reconstruction. There was this whole series of programs that were designed to help out people who were the victims, essentially, of, well, it wasn't called Reaganism at that point yet, <laughs> but of the Republican efforts back in the 1920s and the whittling away of the New Deal. You know, the Franklin Roosevelt did an awful lot of great stuff in the 1930s and the, er the early 1940s, and then, you know, we, we just started whittling away at it. And LBJ put it, not just put it back together, but built it even larger. And over the last 40 years, what have we seen? The gradual but consistent and steady destruction of all of it. David in Monterey, California. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Communities need to make fair rules for the citizens to live together. And uh, fair rules, and that, that would help make sure that the homeless keep their, their areas clean, that they can live. And somebody talked about community centers, and I think they should have adult community centers where they, they teach people to do penny capitalism, like beading work and any kind of other type of thing that they can make money on their own, maybe a day labor place, and a path to school for those that can go to school. And that way uh, uh, we can live together as a community instead of fighting against that community and raise people up out of that homeless situation yeah. and take a sense of pride in our homeless situation instead of, instead of treating them like the, they're the enemy. I'm, or I'm... Like, like Seattle. Uh, we we, uh, we uh, rode up to Seattle, and they had put the homeless in these little camps. And then they left them alone so that the bullies would run the camps and they allowed the trash to, to build up so that they, they can go in and say, oh, this ain't working and we'll just take everything out. We, we actually need fair rules that are spelled out and, and uh, community outreach. The police could be used um, as, uh, as an outreach to the homeless, not somebody to come and hit them with a club or chase them from one place to another. And the last point is, if you have enough sleep, you can deal with anything. If you don't get enough sleep, you cannot deal with nothing. Yeah. And I, I guess. 
Okay. That's my rant. It's a good rant, David. <laughs> and, and, I tell, and, I, and I completely get it. And I think that, you know, a, a big piece of this is, is simply providing housing to homeless people. Uh, you know, it's, uh, New York City did some of this during the uh, pandemic. Uh, where they, they actually were using some of the hotels that were vacant as housing for homeless people. And now they're, they're making some of that permanent, actually. And, uh, you know, we just, we need, we need services. This is, this is, you know, somebody earlier said, sir, I think it was Morris, said services, you know, the, the key to it. They'll provide people with health care, provide them with education, provide them with addiction treatment, provide them with mental health treatment, provide them most importantly with a place to live and food to eat. This is uh, such a large topic. I, I think that Sharon Lee wrote a piece for uh, shelterforce.org about what Seattle is up to and what they're doing, how they're building tiny houses for homeless people. And uh, as of this moment, they are, they are housing, uh, you know, close to 1,000 people in these. Um, 879, this is, oh, that was just during 2018. Uh, they, uh, the, the villages served 879 homeless men, women, and children. Um, of the 491 who exited the villages, a total of 166 or 34% were sub successful in obtaining permanent housing. Uh, if you include the people who moved into transitional housing, uh, that takes it up to 42%. Um, uh, this, is, this is great stuff. I mean, Seattle is doing, uh, uh, has, uh, you know, apparently has a great start on this, and I want to get more detail on that uh, as time goes on. Loretta is speaking of Seattle, in Seattle. Hey, Loretta, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I just wanted to um, uh, speak to the, your your uh, comment about the food deserts mm -hmm. and uh, and the contribution to uh, the different diseases and illnesses. Malnutrition, yeah. And, yeah, and the and the reality that we're dealing with is the fact that the unhealthy benefit the wealthy, and as long as we have the healthcare system that we have, there's no incentive for the people benefiting off of the unhealthy to change that. Yeah, my old friend Don Hoy, who ran the Creative Health Institute uh, uh, before he died, uh, uh, I mean, a uh, long story, but anyhow, he, he used to say, every cancer diagnosis is a, half, is a quarter million dollars for the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. So why, yeah. you know, why would they be working to stop you know, cancer? I mean, it, it, which right. is a totally cynical statement, but um, it's also in the, uh, perhaps at the human view, it's, it's, it's not, you know, 100% right, but in the, in the macro, in, the, 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 in economics, they refer to it as perverse incentives. Um, you, know, we, uh, you know, we have a system that incentivizes sickness rather than incentivizes wellness. And one of the reasons why, you know, countries in Europe and, and in South Asia, you know, in Asia, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, one of the reasons why they have large public health programs to discourage smoking, encourage good eating, encourage, uh, you know, good access to a wide variety of fresh foods, encourage exercise, is because it reduces their health care costs, which for them is good. Whereas if you try to do that, you know, with uh, the old hospital chain that, that Senator Rick Scott used to own, or the, or the other hospital chain that, you know, former Senator Bill Frist used to own, um, you know, it hurts their bottom line if you make people healthier. So, uh, yeah, I, th I think you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. Thank you very much for the call. Lauren in Mesa, Arizona. Hey, Lauren, what's up? Well, but the homeless problem, it's really just, it's horrible here. And um, I can't even go to the grocery store these days without somebody approaching me in the parking lot asking for help because they don't have money to pay for the electricity or for food. Yeah. So, you know, we've got some programs that are 
aimed at trying to help, you know, um, using empty hotels and things like that. But it's just a drop in the bucket. Uh, The other day, I was driving around in Scottsdale, and I saw a sign that was up by the freeway, and it was encouraging people not to give anything to panhandlers. Hmm. An official sign? It was yeah, an official sign from the yeah. city of Scottsdale. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the idea that uh, by giving money to panhandlers, you're encouraging them to continue panhandling. Um, and, but again, they're dealing with a symptom rather than the problem. You know, what is it exactly. that creates panhandlers? You know, deep poverty. What, what creates deep poverty? Um, you know, it's a tearing of the social fabric. We just have to recognize this. We are looking at the fabric of this country over a 40-year period of Reaganism being just literally ripped apart. Well, not literally, but metaphorically ripped apart. And, 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 and we have to address this. We have to address this in, in a multidisciplinary way, and we have to do a good job of doing it, frankly, and, and we're not doing any of that. Um, Loretta, yeah, and people who are homeless. They're the victims of crimes more often than not. Uh, it, you know, we yes. talk about crime and homelessness. There was a woman, I was in the emergency room not too long ago. The woman next to me, she was crying her eyes out because she didn't have a home to return to. Someone had attempted to rape her right before she got to the hospital, and they just threw her out. Wow. Wow. This should not be in the United States. You know, the richest no. nation in the world. We should not have these kinds of stories being told. Lauren, thank you. Thank you for your contribution to the conversation. It was brilliant. Bill in Sun City, Arizona. Hey, Bill, what's up? Tom, the problem isn't that we ignore the problems. The problem is that we ignore the simple solutions. All the problems we don't ignore. We can name them. They have names. We've identified them. Hunger. There's an invasive species swimming up our American rivers. That what gets thrown away today could feed the masses. We ignore the solutions. The hungry people at the border could help us gather up those that invasive species and, and, and create an economy that can go to both sides of the border and, and help a lot of people. Yeah. Poverty. Oh, oh, wait a second, please. I'm sorry. Sure. But, but poverty. Poverty, the, the, the solution to poverty is money. Where do we get money? We know where to get money. We, we've done it before. You've mentioned it. It's called the STET tax. One-tenth of one percent. One-tenth of one, one-tenth of one percent of one billion dollars, Tom, is a million dollars. The stock market creates a $50 billion a day. That's $50 million. That if, if you're trading it at percentages of less than one-tenth of one percent, you know, a, a dime on $100, you're in the wrong business. Yeah. But... So, I mean, the answers are there, Tom, yeah. as far as housing. Housing, we can build housing that, that now, now marijuana is going to be legal. we got to grow hemp like it's going out of style. An 18-inch 18 18-inch 18 thick hemp block has an R value of 41. You can live in an R41 home in the desert and never need air conditioning or very likely need air conditioning. You can live in the stark winters and hardly need heat. I mean... Yeah. The answer is there. There are simple, simple solutions to them, and we have to just stop ignoring them. I'm with you. I'm with you. Bill, thank you. Jamie in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hey, Jamie, your thoughts. Hi. So Hi. I think that the three main things that people need access to in order to be able to stay off of the streets, first of all, is food, because we know that uh, without food, there's a sense of hopelessness and despair that comes, and it's going to make them, force them into situations of crime, which is just going to spiral out of control. 
second is education, and I'm talking about from kindergarten all the way on to college. Mm -hmm. They need access to equal education and well-funded education so that they do have options when they grow up, when these kids grow up and they have options for their family other than stealing. And finally, we need a healthcare system, specifically mental health, that everyone can access, and one that does not treat mental illness as an acute problem. Because currently in the United States, mental illness is treated as an acute problem. You might get hospitalized for a week if you're willing or if the circumstances are bad enough, and then they just throw you back out there, hopefully with a prescription that you may or may not be able to afford. And it's really not solving anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I believe, the, I believe the solution to all of this is to get money out of politics and corporations out of politics, because not only are they stealing all that money from the people that need it, but they're also spreading all this rhetoric that you need to work for what you, uh, what you get and desensitizing people to thinking that it's okay to let people starve to death or suffer because they're not working. Yeah, yeah, I am with you, Jamie. And I, and you, I, I mean, that was one of the more comprehensive analyses that I've heard, and and you did a great job. Thank you so much for that, and and thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM there in Salt Lake City. And I would say, I, I, again, uh, to point to where this all began, one of the things that Jamie was talking about was education. People need good good quality education from kindergarten through through college. And we had that in the United States prior to 1980. Just ask any old fart like me, you know, who, who came up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they will tell you. You know, you could go to any college that, you know, that you could, I mean, was, you had to have a certain skill level to get in, obviously, but, or trade schools were widely available, unions trained people. And then what did Reagan do? He put Bill Bennett in charge of the education department. And we began deconstructing education across the United States. And who was Bill Bennett? Bill Bennett is the guy who said this. But I, I do know that it's true that if you wanted to reduce crime, you could, if that were your sole purpose, you could abort every black baby in this country and your crime rate would go down. That would be an impossible, ridiculous, and morally reprehensible thing to do. But your crime rate would go down. That was the Secretary of Education under Ronald Reagan. This is where it began. And this is what it has brought us to. And yeah, there's a racial component to it, obviously. As well as a class component, as well as a greed component, as well as a, you know, it's, just, it's tearing our society apart, and we have to do something about that. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.